It would be great if I could just tell you how to live a good life uh, with no problems, with no sin, to just live a good life, how to do that, and all the different things that you can do, and no problems would happen, and you just know, here is what I do. And you could just always then, from that point, get it right. That, that would be awesome. And yet, that's not uh, what God's Word intends to do. That's not really what I intend to do or what preaching intends to do, because I can't just promise you, here's the ways to live a good life, and here's how you do it, and go and, and have a great life. It's good to have teaching on how to live a good life. It's good to have teaching on what to do, but we also need to understand what to do when we mess up, what to do when we don't get it right, what to do when we blow it, what to do when we haven't lived the way we're supposed to. It's great to have teaching on the way to live, but we also need teaching on what to do when we don't live the way we should live. A lot of times we might ask that question, what now? Okay, I'm in a conflict with my spouse. What now? I'm in a conflict with family or friends. What do I do now? I have wandered away from God, and I'm trying to figure out how to get back. What do I do now? There's sexual sin that I have let myself fall into. What now? What do I do now? Maybe you just look at your life, and you realize that you've had certain heart commitments Certain idols that we, we talked about last week, ways that our hearts are latched on to things that are not God, and you say, okay, I know that I've been committed to things that I shouldn't be committed to. I know that there's been things that are more important to me than God. What now? And this can be true in a, in just as you reflect on your life, that you look back and go, okay, now what after all these years? But it can also just be true in a day. You have a rough interaction with someone, you are rude or mean to someone, you yell at your kids, you don't do things the right way, and you go, okay, what now today? What, what do I do after this moment? Again, it's, it's great to have teaching on how to live a good life and what to do, but we also need the teaching on what do I do when I mess it up? What do I do when I blow it? What do I do when I don't get it right? Is there, is there something to do forward from there? And if we want to grow close to God if we want to build stronger relationships, if we want to have a deeper faith, if we want to just experience transformation as people, we need not just to know what to do, but what to do when we don't do what we should do. How to return to God. Really, that's what this series is about. It's a, it's a short book in the Bible called Zephaniah. You probably, it's probably not one of your favorite books of the Bible. You might not even know any verses from this. It's an intense book. If you were here last week, I can't obviously recap everything from last week, but it's intense. There's, if you look in a children's Bible, they just decided this book doesn't exist. It's not even, it's not there. Because I don't know how you illustrate, I'm going to pour your blood out like dust and your flesh like dung. That's kind of a, a crazy illustration, right? If you opened up your kid's Bible and saw that page, you would not be happy and go, yeah, it's the word of God. Here you go, little Jimmy. Uh, you would not probably like that, right? So it's an intense book. There's a lot of stuff in here that's intense, and yet it's a needed book. It's a helpful book that helps us to understand how to return, again, whether in a life or in a day, to God when we have not done what we should do. It's a rhythm that we need to learn as God's people is, what do I do when I've messed it up? 
And so today, we're going to be continuing in this book and looking at how we return when we've messed up, specifically focusing in on repentance and just this idea, this word, and, and what that looks like and what it means, why it's needed, what we actually need to repent of, and how to do it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me read the passage to us. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 15. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. Anger. Then he's going to list all these different kind of countries that are around Judah, around Israel. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the sea coast, nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon, for the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. If you are familiar with those, the, the names of those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah were kind of cities in Genesis that God totally destroyed for their sin. And so he is, and they're kind of um, infamous for that. So he is saying that they will become like that. A place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow in worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it. Every kind of wild animal, both eagle, owls, and herons, will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Just speaking of it as completely destroyed, and now it's just a nest for wild animals. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold, for he will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lay down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. As we talk about repentance that this passage calls us to, let's begin with asking this question, why is repentance needed? Why is repentance needed? 
And that might seem maybe like an obvious question, but again, I think it's helpful to dig into this. We sin. Each of us sins in various ways at different times, pretty much on a regular basis in thought, in attitude, in action. We sin. And when we sin, if you have a sensitive conscience, we feel something. We feel guilt. We feel bad for what we've done. We feel bad for what we've thought. We feel bad for how we've felt or what our motives have been. We feel guilt. We feel shame. The feeling that something is wrong with me, that I would do this. So we feel these things when we sin. And to deal with that, what do we do? Oftentimes, we try to downplay what we've done to say, well, it's not really that big of a deal or everyone does it or, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. I, I, you know, it's not as bad as other people. We kind of try to downplay it to deal with those feelings of guilt and shame. Or what we try to do is to kind of speak to ourselves or maybe other friends do this for us, to kind of speak to the guilt and say, no, you aren't that bad. Don't feel guilty. You are a good mom. You are a good worker. You, you are really uh, good at this. You know, you're, so many people would be, would be grateful to have you as a friend. And we try to kind of overtake the guilt with positive messages. Say, that's not really who you are. I know that's not really you. You have a good heart. That was totally out of character. That's not you. It was just a bad day. And we try to kind of overpower the guilt with positive messages and positive thinking to help ourselves feel better. Or we just try to move on. So we, we feel this guilt for whatever it is, for a life or for a day or for a moment. We feel this guilt and say, okay, I'm just going to do better. We feel this feeling, and the way we will overcome it is by a commitment mentally to saying, I'm going to move forward and do better. That's not going to happen anymore. I've got resolve. I've got strength. I'm going to do better from this moment on. We try to deal with the guilt in some way. But here's the, here's the reality. Our guilt is like a check engine light. You have a check engine light? Our check engine light is always on. It feels like if the check engine light wasn't on, that I would feel like, oh, the battery must be broken on the check engine light, so I need to get the check engine light fixed. That's how much it's a constant in our car. But the check engine light tells you something is wrong, right? Guilt is like a check engine light. Sometimes we think, ah, oh, guilt's bad, and you shouldn't feel guilty, and don't feel guilt, and don't feel shame, and those are kind of really popular messages in our culture today. You should never feel bad about anything. You should never feel guilt. You should never feel shame. And yet guilt is a check engine light that God has given us that says something is wrong. Zephaniah starts by saying that in our sin, the Lord's anger is burning. He repeats three different times, the burning of the Lord's anger, the Lord's anger, the Lord's anger. See, when we sin, we talked about this last week, but God is angry. God's not happy with our sin. Sin is serious. And so like a burning light, guilt is saying something is wrong. We have done something bad. And guilt is the emotion that helps us realize with a sensitive conscience, I have done something wrong. I have done something not good. I have done something that has sparked God's anger. 
We need guilt because sin is serious. Sin is deadly. Sin hurts us. Sin hurts other people. Sin dishonors God. So guilt, when you feel guilt, if it's for something you should feel guilt about, if it's for sin, if you feel guilt, if you feel shame over sin, that is good. It's the check engine light that shows you your sin is serious. And thus, building on why repentance is needed, it's because God judges our sin. God judges because sin is serious. We need repentance because God judges our sin. God judges it. He deals with it. He hates it. Look at some of the things that we read. He's calling them to repent and says to do this before the decree takes effect, the decree of God's judgment and all the things that he is going to do. And then towards the end, it says, the Lord, the kind of the summation, the Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. All of this is to say, God is going to bring judgment. God will deal with sin. And he mentions all of these different nations, Ashdod and Ashkelon. This is, this is Jerusalem and Judah. And he mentions all of these places from the west to the east, to the south, to the north, all these different cities around Judah saying God's going to bring judgment to this place, to this place, all over, which is God hears across nations. God sees across nations. He even zooms out to further north to Nineveh and Assyria, and he even talks down here about Cush or Ethiopia, and mentions all of these places that God is going to bring judgment to. God sees everything. God is not just kind of some localized deity, some local prince that's just in charge of this place. God sees the sin in Denver, in Boulder, in Arvada, in America, in North America, in earth, in all of it. God sees across nations. He hears and sees the sin. And why repentance is needed is because God will, sin is serious and God will judge it. God will deal with it. Then he dealt with it. It was a few decades later that God's judgment came and Judah was totally wiped out and these nations were totally wiped out. God's judgment came then. And what we were looking at, though, also last week, and you see some of it in here too, is that this is a prophecy speaking about the day of the Lord, which can be a moment that's going to happen in a specific time, but also ultimately is foreshadowing the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and fully deals with sin across the world once and for all. God's judgment comes. It came then. It will come one day. And we experience and can experience part of it in our lives, that as we sin, often there are consequences for our sin. As we sin, if you are a Christian and God's child, God disciplines us in our sin, not to punish us punitively in a way that is to get back at us, but to change us, transform us. But we often will, even in this life, reap what we sow. God brings his judgment. Repentance is needed because sin is serious and God will deal with it. God will deal with it. God doesn't let it go. And listen, I know we don't like this picture of God. We like the picture of God, of God is love. 
We like the picture of God, that God is patient and God is kind and God is gentle. Those are the things that we like. Those are the verses that we have memorized. Those are the, the thoughts that we think of or reflect on normally when we think about God. Those are probably the thoughts that you think of when maybe, I don't know, that you are like, I think I should come to church this morning. I, I need some encouragement in my life. Oh, we're talking about Zephaniah? No. Probably it's, I need to know about God's love and I need to know about his comfort and I need to know about his patience. And oh, that's, that's the God I need. And then we read kind of books like this and it's almost like you kind of, and I'm not trying to say this in a blasphemous way, but when you open up someone that you thought was just a normal person, they turn out to be a serial killer, and then you look through their journals, and you're like, ah, oh, now it makes sense. And that's kind of what it can feel like reading Zephaniah. It's, I thought you were this loving, kind person, and now I'm reading through this stuff, and it's judgment, and it's all the nations, and everyone you're going to destroy. And last week, it's even talking about judging the animals. It's like, I'm going to kill you and kill your dog. And you're just like, what is wrong? And we read that stuff and it's intense. It's not the picture of God that we normally think about. It can make us uneasy. Part of that is because when we think of justice, we think of judgment, we think about ourselves or people that we know. And it's usually petty. It's usually us getting back at someone because we're mad at them for something they did to us. And it's usually mixed. It's usually not pure. It's usually not out of love. It's usually these mixed motives. I, I remember as a kid that, and I probably shouldn't say this because I'll give some of you uh, children in the room bad ideas, but I'll say it. Uh, my older brother and I, if we were mad at each other during the day, and if we were like, okay, I, how can I get back at you? And we shared a room for a lot of the time. What it would be like, you know, towards the end of the night and my parents would come in and say goodnight and maybe we'd read a story or something and then they'd leave and, and then we, I might whisper to him or he might whisper to me and say, hey, Gabe, goodnight, goodnight. And just so you know, earlier I put my butt on your pillow. <laughs> and, you know, right as his face is on the pillow and then he's got to sleep with my butt on, you know, and that's just kind of, so there you go, kids. Now you know what to do. Uh, you, this is maybe the first sermon application you'll walk away with and go, ah, okay, I know what the pastor said. It's petty though, right? It's just kind of petty. Like you wronged me. You took too much time on the video game. You did this. You took the last candy or whatever. And so I'm going to pay you back. That's sometimes our picture of, of justice and wrath. And it's just kind of petty. So for us, when we hear about God like that, it's like, what's your problem, dude? Chill out. But for God, it's not like that. For God, it's way different than that. God is just because God cannot tolerate wrong. God can't look at wickedness and God can't look at sin and just say, that's totally fine. God can't look at the sin that's been done against you in your life and say, I don't care. And think about it. You've been wronged in various ways. And listen, as a pastor, I've talked to many people who have been wronged in all sorts of ways. Maybe you have been sexually abused. Maybe you have been cheated financially. Maybe you have been betrayed. Maybe you have been hurt in other ways that are extreme. And, and just sin that's done against us all the time. If God were to sit down with you, across from you, and say, yeah, I really don't care. I'm love. You, that wouldn't compute. That picture wouldn't fit together. God's justice 
is an outflowing of his love. It's because God is love that he is also just. It's because God is love that he says, I will do something about the sin that's been done against you, that's been done in my world, that's been done to my people. It's because of his love. God hates evil and he can't be okay with it. That's why he says things like this. I have heard the taunting, the insults. They've taunted my people. They've threatened their territory. I have seen people acting arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. He's saying, I see it. People are insulting and taunting and doing things that are damaging, threatening against my people. I see it. I would be unloving to let that go. I would be wrong to just turn a blind eye to that and say, I don't care. Some of our, our kind of political heroes or, or heroes in our country, like Martin Luther King Jr., talk about that kind of thing. The worst kind of thing is people that do nothing, right? It is, it is the good people that do nothing when they see injustice. It is, the, it is love that drives a fight for justice. It's love that says, I won't let that go. I will do something about the wrongs that have been done. For us, sometimes it's hard because we're petty and because we've seen people kind of act in ways that are just vengeful. But for God, it is his love that drives him to justice. For God, it is his love and his care for his people and his world that drives him to not be passive, but to take action. This is actually good news. Because without this, what it means is that when you look at the world and you see brokenness and you see sin, you see things either just in the world that hurt you and bother you, when you turn on the news or you see different headlines, or in your own life, it means God will do something about it. It means that ultimately the wicked don't get off. It means that ultimately every wrong, every sorrow, every injustice that we see in the world or that's ever been done against you, it means God will take care of it. Sometimes that happens on this earth. Sometimes it happens in the future. But it actually is freeing because it means we can work for justice. We can seek to right wrongs, but we know ultimately the burden isn't on us and God is saying he will take care of it. And it means we don't have to be the judge and take vengeance against people in our life. It doesn't mean that you don't seek uh, the right course of action. It doesn't mean you just allow people to steal your stuff and say, oh, God will take care of it later. It doesn't mean that but it does mean we don't have to take vengeance. We don't have to be the ultimate judge against people because God is saying, I will do that. I will take care of things. I do not turn a blind eye. So why is repentance needed? The point I want you to see here as we begin is because sin is serious. It's the check engine light. God's anger is burning. Sin is serious and God will Judge it. God doesn't, take, God doesn't take sin lightly. That's one of the big ideas of Zephaniah. It's one of the big ideas I want us to understand as a church. God doesn't take sin lightly. It is serious, and God judges it. 
And part of this passage, God is focusing on, he talks to his people, Judah, but he's focusing on the nations because sometimes it's as we reflect on God's judgment towards other people, we can see, oh, and we will experience that also. Sometimes when we see God condemn other people's sin and think about them, then the mirror kind of is, it's, it's easier for us to go, oh yeah, and that's, that's for me also. So if we start talking about how other people are liars and other people are cheaters and other people are self-righteous and other people, it's, it, we, we can see that way more clearly a lot of times, right? We go, yeah, those people, them, them, them. And then the point is like, oh yeah, but I'm kind of in that same boat. And if they deserve justice, I deserve justice. And if they are sinners, I'm a sinner. That's part of what God is doing as he talks about his justice against the nations in this passage. Sin, repentance is needed because sin is serious and God will judge it. But what do we need to repent of? And as you even just think about your life, when you think about what comes to mind, when you think about what it is that you need to repent of, just shout out what you need to repent No, I'm just kidding. Uh, when you think about what you need to repent of, you think about the, the issues that are in your life, what comes to your mind? Oftentimes, it is certain actions and things that we do. And that's necessary to repent of. But there's more than that. And oftentimes if we miss what he calls out in this passage, then we actually don't experience the change that God wants for us. See, when we think about repentance, we oftentimes see the effects of things on the outside. We see the things that we do, we see the actions, we see the responses and the words, we see the attitudes, we kind of see stuff that happens out here and yet can miss what's happening inside, but then it's not actually dealt with. Think about sickness. Most of the time with sickness, uh, if you ever go into a doctor or uh, dentist or someone and you have to fill out the forms and there's pages and pages of, do you ever have a headache? Yes. Okay, do you ever have this? And there's just all these things. You ever have this thing happen, this thing happen? Do you have pain here? Do you have to fill out the body and circle the parts that you have pain on? And you're just pages and pages and pages. And by the time it's done, you're like, okay, now my eyes hurt and my head hurts. And I have to go back and circle more things. I'm annoyed. Where's that? Where's my emotional you know, thing? Show me all of that are symptoms. And they're trying to gauge what your symptoms are so they can find out what the internal causes are. Because you don't just go, you know what my problem is? I, I've got a runny nose. Well, that's probably not the, the, the core issue. That's a symptom. No one just has kind of a puking problem. You just say, what's their problem? Oh, they just puke. It's, well, that's, that's a symptom of something else, right? And the same thing is true with sin. That we've got all these certain actions that we have or attitudes that we have or words that we have or ways that we respond and we think about where do I need to repent? What is it that I need to repent of? Usually it's those things that we think of. We think about, back to the medical analogy, we think about the tiredness or the runny nose or the headache or the pain. We think about all the symptoms and go, I want those things to go away. I know that those things are wrong. Yeah, but where's that coming from? Just like sickness, there's internal things that lead to the external effects. And if we only deal with the external things and the internal thing is never fixed, then you're just somebody shoving Kleenex up your nose and go, my runny nose is fixed. But the issue hasn't actually changed. The issue hasn't actually 
been dealt with. And what he says here is the core that he is calling out, the core that he is calling out that needs to be repented of is pride. This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly. And then later in the passage, it kind of describes this pride. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, this is the voice of pride, that says to herself, I exist and there's no one else. That's pride. And it begins, this passage begins with a call to humility. We'll look at that in a second. But that's implying that humility is not there, therefore, and that pride, again, is the issue. He's calling out as the source, right at the end of the passage, this is the source, this is where it comes from. I exist, there's no one else. I exist and there's no one else. Pride. See, what we need to repent of is not just the actions that we do, but the source that it comes from. And if you think about it, why do you get angry? Well, there's something that you feel, you want, you deserve, that you are not getting. How dare you treat me this way? Me! How dare you? Me! Especially if you're talking to customer service. Do you know who I am? No, and I don't care. You know. <clears throat> Sometimes I've been disconnected after being on like an hour-long call. Like, I know you did that on purpose. <clears throat> and who, who, who could ever, like, there's nothing you can even do about it, right? It's a twisted industry. Um, <laughs> the... Why do we get angry if it's not pride? Why do, we, why do we sin sexually if it's not, I deserve this, or I know my way is better? Maybe you've even heard that I shouldn't do this, or this isn't right, but uh, I know better, or I deserve this, I need this. Why, why do we uh, get into conflict if it's not that there's something I want and someone's in the way of that. Selfishness. Selfishness. I want to be served. I want something. And, and this other I wants something. And that's what creates conflict. See, if you think about it, all the different behaviors or issues or attitudes that we might say, I need repentance here or here or here, they really boil down to some form of pride. Something that I want, something that I feel I deserve, something that I feel I need. Even, even when we look at life and it's kind of more the, the self-righteousness category of sins, where we look down on other people and we're judgmental towards other people and we gossip about other people, even the kind of the, the pretty religious sins that don't look like necessarily something observably wrong, but it's attitude. Again, that's all pride. I'm better. I wouldn't do that. Why can't they be like me? The world would be such a better place. Everyone was like me. Pride. This is why Augustine, who was an early church leader, father, said that there never can have been and never can be and there never shall be any sin without pride. And later talks about pride being the mother of all sins. It gives birth to every other sin. All of our sins are rooted in some way 
in this self-centeredness. In the voice that it said, I'm just going to go back to it, that I exist and there is no one else. All sins are ultimately rooted in that mentality, whether they look like nice religious sins or they look like the typical sins that we look at and would condemn. All sin is ultimately rooted in pride. And there's a boastful version of this, which is, I'm so great, I'm so awesome, I'm so successful, I've done such a great job. And there's a kind of self-pity version of this. You can say, I exist and there's no one else with boasting. And you can say, I exist and there's no one else. You can have this strong pride that looks, uh, you know, vivacious and just, I don't know if that's the right word. It looks, uh, it looks loud and looks kind of out there. And you can have a pride that looks sad and anxious and weak and depressed and nobody cares for me and nobody loves me and nobody's for me and nobody thinks about me and everybody else gets good things and not me and is still self-focused. And we can try to deal with this sin and deal with that sin, we can try to deal with this symptom and that symptom, deal with our anger and deal with our lust and deal with our gossip and deal with our communication issues and deal with, we can try to deal with all these different things, but if we miss pride, then we miss the disease, we miss the source, and the sickness continues. And what God calls out here across the nations to us is that pride must be dealt with if we want to actually experience change. If we want to actually experience growth. I have to say also that this is actually, again, good news. Because what it means is that pride is a lie. What it means is that the voice that says, I exist and that there is no one else. What it means, and sometimes this is the beginning of repentance. Sometimes this is what we need to see. That that is a lie. You are not alone. Isn't that actually good news to say, it's not true that I exist and that there is no one else. You are not alone. You are not by yourself. You're not the center of the world. That's actually good news. It releases burden to say, it's not you that exists and there's no one else. You're not alone. You're not the center of the world. You don't have to be the best at everything. You don't have to be the one that is awesome at all things and is, never fails and never messes up. It's not true that you exist and there is no one else. It's not true that you have to deal with problems by yourself. You have to change by yourself. You have to figure things out by yourself. That is false, which is actually good news that God calls us to repent of pride is actually freeing because it's to say that's not actually true. That's not the right view of the world. It isn't just you at the center. That's actually good news. Which leads us to our final thing, which is how do we repent then? Why we need to repent is because sin is serious and God judges it. That's oftentimes the beginning place that we need to understand. This is serious. God will judge. Secondly, we need to understand that we need to repent, yes, of actions and things we do, but ultimately the core, our pride. And so how do we do it? How do we repent? I want to 
help us practically. Again, listen, you can hear this in two different ways or both ways at the same time. You can think about this as a season. How do I repent kind of for this pattern in my life? Whether you look at it relationally in your marriage or with your kids or kind of attitudes and work. Or last week we talked a lot about idolatry and ways that our hearts are set on things that might be good things, but they become God things to us, ultimate things. And you realize, okay, I have a pattern of this. So how do you repent of a season or just how do you come back? How do you repent in a day? Today, later today. You get in some conflict with your spouse or you are rude in some way to your kids or you are, uh, I don't know, you are dishonest, you lie, you, you, you sin in sexual sin. I mean, it could be a million different ways that you sin, right? Okay, so then what? What do you do? How do you repent? Let's look at what this passage gives to us because it's actually very practical and as I said, we, it can be helpful to know what to do and how to live good, but we also need to know what to do when we don't do good. So what does he say? We'll go back to the beginning of the passage, which really kind of lays this out for us. But first, I want to just go back to the beginning of Zephaniah and then show you how it leads into chapter 2. That's the dot, dot, dot. But it just the book of Zephaniah begins with the word of the Lord that came, and then to Zephaniah, gather yourselves together before the decree, and the decree is this whole book, really, but the word of the Lord that has come, all these things that God is saying. And this is really the starting point. The starting point of repentance is to listen. God is speaking. The word of the Lord came, and it's mentioning this decree, this, the words of God that is coming. And so the starting place of repentance, if you want to know how to repent, really begins with, we need to listen. God is speaking. God speaks to us. And repentance begins with listening. And that's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. But even as this whole book can be filled with judgment and filled with God's hatred of sin, it's actually filled with his grace. Because he isn't walking, God doesn't see this sin and this evil in your life or in all this stuff that he's talking about. God doesn't see that and just go, I can't stand this, I'm out of here. God sees it and actually says, okay, I'm entering into it and I want to speak. I want to talk to you. That's actually grace. Because couldn't God see sin and just say, unbelievable, I'm leaving. Or not give a word of the Lord, not give a decree and just say, sin, judgment, boom. Done. But instead, he speaks. To speak is actually to give grace because it's actually an invitation. It's actually to say, I don't want you to stay here. I want you to do something before the decree. I want you to change. I want you not to experience judgment. God's voice speaking to us in our sin is his grace. That's why guilt is even his grace. Because if he were to just leave us alone as psychopaths to not feel anything, that itself would be his judgment. To say, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm going to let you do your thing. Go for it. But for God to convict us. See, that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does today. That he will convict you. He will point out things to you that are wrong in your life. And sometimes 
We hate the feeling of that. So we try to silence it and shut it off and look at our phones and just do whatever we can to distract from that voice. But the Holy Spirit wants to convict you, wants to show you this is wrong. Not because he's trying to make fun of you or hurt you, but because it's an act of grace to say, listen, listen. The beginning of repentance is to listen to the voice of God, to not ignore him when he speaks. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you in areas in your life right now? And if so, are you trying to shut that down, shut it off, get it away, silence it? Or are you saying, okay, God, clearly you're speaking. The shame, the guilt, the constant thought that comes back to me, okay, you want me to do something with that. The first step is to listen. And then secondly, is he says, this is how it begins. He says, gather yourselves together, and then repeats it again. Gather together. Isn't that interesting that he doesn't just say, go home and think about this by yourself. That would be the American version of Zephaniah. But God says, gather together. Gather yourselves together. See, that's what we're doing right now. That's part of why right now if you're in a LTG, a life transformation group, we're actually going through a curriculum that follows along with this book to talk about change and to talk about how God wants us to bring our lives and our sin to grow in him. It's because it is helpful for you to be by yourself praying with God. Yes, that is helpful. But it is also helpful to gather together. It's also helpful to come together and say, I can't do this by myself. That together, God has designed us as community people to even, not just in our joys and fun to, to have community, but to gather together and say, where is it that we need to repent? Where is it that God wants to grow us? How can we help each other in that? Oftentimes, it's done better together than just by ourselves. So, how do we repent? First, we listen to the voice of God that speaks to us, that convicts us. Second, it is helpful to gather together. Next thing that he says is, and I mentioned this, but he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It is this posture of humility that we are to have as we come to God. Which means we don't come to God saying, I've got it all together. We don't even come to God just saying, I'm going to do better now. Because that can even be pride. Say, okay, that was the, the false version of me, but the better version of me, I'm going to do better now. It's actually to come humbly to God. Humility is to know our need. It's to know our sin. It's to know our weakness. It's to know our inability. It's to know I don't deserve any sort of second chance, third chance, fourth chance. I don't deserve any salvation. I don't deserve any grace. I need you. That's humility. Humility is a posture that is saying, I can't do this by myself. I need you. Humility is admitting and owning our weakness and also relying upon his mercy and saying, will you do something for me, not I'm going to do something better now? But it's to say, I need you. 
I don't deserve it. I need you. It's an attitude of submission, an attitude of recognition of our weakness. It's the opposite of I exist and there's no one else. It's saying, I need you. Humility. See, how do you repent today, later today? When you are convicted of your sin. Yes, you listen to the voice of God, but then you have to actually be humble and say, God, I need you. I can't do this. I need you. And that's true when you look at patterns in your life. Instead of just turning over a new leaf, instead of just um, hiding it, it's to say, God, I need you. I can't do this. I need what you can do. And then related in the humility, he says this little line that is actually really helpful. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. And that perhaps isn't like maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's perhaps for you. Maybe this will happen in your life. Hopefully this happens in your life. That you will be concealed or hidden. That God's wrath and God's justice and God's anger we rightly deserve. But when we humbly come saying, I do deserve that, but will you conceal me? Will you hide me? Will you protect me? That's humility. To be concealed is to know I need to be concealed. I can't stand by myself. I need you to do something, which ultimately that leads us to Jesus, who is the one that in this beautiful way blends together God's justice and mercy. God's full wrath and anger is poured out on Jesus on the cross, justice fulfilled. And yet at the same time, all those that come to him are able to be concealed and receive mercy. And so for us today to repent is to come to him humbly and say, I know I deserve your judgment, but hide me in Jesus. I know I deserve your judgment, but thank you that you gave that to Jesus instead of me. Thank you that I am hidden in him, that he took it for me. That's humility, not to stand on your own two feet, but to allow what he did to be true for you. That's what faith is. It's to put our trust away from ourselves and to him. And then to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. We talked about that phrase last week also, to seek the Lord, which just notice this. It's not just when he's calling them to repent. It's not just change your behavior, but it is seek the Lord. It's go to a person. That is so important because listen, so often our understanding of repentance is stop being angry, start being patient. Stop gossiping, start shutting up. Start, uh, you know, stop, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever else. Stop looking at porn, start looking at the Bible, you know, whatever it is. Some don't do this, do this. And I'm not saying we don't do that, but that misses seek the Lord. Because repentance has to have the component of, I'm going to God. I've sinned against God, and I'm now coming to him. 
I'm coming to him. I'm bringing myself to him. I'm engaging with him. Not just changing my behavior. Because the roots of the sin is I exist and there's no one else. And thus the roots of repentance is I don't exist, you exist. I don't solely exist, I do exist. But I don't solely exist, you exist. And it's you. And I need you. And I want to live in your reality. And I want to experience who you are and what you say and what you do. So we come to him. We bring ourselves to him. We reorient our trust to him. We see him and understand and know him is better than just ourselves. That is repentance. It's beginning to see more who he is instead of just a focus on ourselves. And then finally, of how we repent, is we seek righteousness, which is to obey. It is to do those actions, to make those changes. It is to actually reorient our lives. It's not good to just say, yes, I'm going to seek the Lord and talk to Him and everything is good and, and then just continue living the exact same way. To seek the Lord, we engage with Him in such a way that then we're asking Him to change us and to proactively pursue to, as Jesus says, hunger and thirst and seek righteousness. To seek to obey. To make restitution where you've done wrong. To make changes. To reconcile relationships. To ask for forgiveness to people that you've wronged. To do things differently. To make changes to your time and your money and your schedule and your goals. and it's, it's, We should have concrete, specific, I am trying to do this differently now. And that can look like all sorts of things. How do we repent? We listen to God. Oftentimes it's helpful to gather together. We have a humble approach. We seek God, and then we seek to change the symptoms, the behavior that is present as well. Listen, we're often going to get it wrong. It's not just how do we live a good life. We're often going to get it wrong. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. We're going to do things that we know we shouldn't do, and we have to be able to have a path forward from there. We have to know not just what to do, but what to do when we don't do what we should do. And Zephaniah helps us as God speaks to his people and calls them to repentance. The path is to see the severity of sin and God's judgment. The path is to see the roots of where that comes from and to then know how to engage with God. I don't know what sin you are dealing with in your life or that you will deal with in your life or patterns or incidents that will come up. I don't know. But I do know that God wants to continually call you to return, to repent. As we take communion, if you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, if, if you're a Christian, communion is something that Christians do where we remember God's body, Jesus' body on the cross, broken for us, his blood shed for us. And the reason for that is to forgive us of our sin, to conceal us, to hide us, that Jesus took all of the judgment of God all the judgment of God for all the severity of what sin is, Jesus took it for you and I so that we don't have to. 
He conceals us and hides us so that we then can trust him and know him and experience freedom and life with him and know then I can always come to him and repent because he's already dealt with it. There never has to be a question of if I come to him, what will he do this time? But we can know he's already done it fully, which is why on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder when the hammer is going to come down. It's already come down on him. And we can then experience grace and rest. So as you take communion, reflect on those things. Ask him to make those truths more real to your heart and take a moment and repent. Listen to God. Maybe he's already spoken to you throughout the sermon. Maybe you just need to pause for a moment. Listen to where the Holy Spirit is convicting you. Come in humility and confess. Seek him. And then we respond in in singing and we respond because of his forgiveness and his grace and his goodness to us. I'll be in the back. If anyone would like to receive prayer for healing in your life or maybe something we talked about in the sermon or, or anything, I would love to pray for you. Father, I thank you that you are reminding us through this book. I thank you that you are reminding us of the deadliness of sin and that you are reminding us of your grace in calling us out of it. Thank you that you don't want to leave us in this sickness of sin but that you dealt with it on the cross and that you deal with it continually in our life, transforming us. Thank you for that grace. Thank you that when you look at our lives and you see our sin, you don't turn away from us, but you continually call us and speak to us. We thank you that you are a God of justice and a God of mercy. Help us, even as we take communion and as we sing, to remember these truths. In your name, Jesus. Amen.